This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, March 20th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Lot 644 gets a new name. EPA studies the grimy side of tourism. Capital Conversation talks substance use and bill signings. And a mountain weather forecast. But first, Norwood lost a member of its community this weekend. Fred Falk was found in his home early Saturday morning, having passed away less than a month after losing his beloved wife, Bobby. Falk was 69 years old. According to the San Miguel County Coroner's Office, Falk truly loved his home in Norwood and worked for over three decades for San Miguel County, serving his community. Falk is survived by his mother, Fern, his siblings, Lee, David, and Karen, his four children, and his four grandchildren. The housing development on lot 644 in Mountain Village officially has a new name. It's not as exciting to say I just bought a house at lot 644. We want it to be in a neighborhood and a real community. That's Catherine Warren, public information officer for Mountain Village, speaking at a town council meeting last week. The top choices came down to Meadowlark, Village Steps, Jurassic Landing, Aspen View, The Nest, and Jurassic Park. With the final choice of, drumroll, Meadowlark. The project is a 29-unit development in the meadows with a mix of townhomes and condos. While naming the new project is an exciting achievement, At its most recent meeting, Town Council also got an update on the lottery and deed restriction process for the project. Here's Assistant Town Manager Michelle Haynes. There are really three options. There's a a traditional lottery, a weighted lottery, which can also have a point system, and just a point selection process. Another portion of this conversation relates to establishing a priority as it relates to the selection process for qualified buyers. And what we heard from you last month is that Mountain Village employees should have the first priority, essential workers, which we'll talk about in a minute, would have the second priority, and then it would waterfall from there. When it comes to who is an essential worker, Haynes says they're expanding the definition from only fire and law enforcement. Here it would include... um, Healthcare, school, fire and police protection, basic sanitation, and maintenance of utilities. And then we wanted to provide some flexibility in there that essentially says, and any other worker deemed essential to the Mountain Village community by the Mountain Village Housing Authority director, and the director is Amy Ward. Town Council wants to first prioritize Mountain Village employees for the units, then moving on to essential workers, and then down the line. Haynes notes with that weighted system, the general public might not have much of a chance. If council wants uh, Mountain Village employees to have first priority, we are recommending that we hold a lottery a few days in advance uh, for Mountain Village employees. Then we establish the lottery that would start with the priority of essential workers. Based on the feedback we have right now, we think we may we may fill the units just between those two categories, to be quite honest. Haynes recommends a weighted lottery where individuals would get more balls in the hopper depending on their eligibility. But that doesn't sit right with all members of council, including council member Don Caton. Here's an exchange between Caton and Haynes. A lottery to me is, you know, balls bouncing and you pick a ball out. They get I don't like that at all. (laughs) If you get 15 points, and somebody else has 13 points, mm-hmm. you get your choice. Yeah. 
There's no picking balls out of it. What you're saying, though, is not really a lottery. It's a point system exactly. that we're going to rank people from the get-go, yes. and then we publish that ranking, and person number one gets to choose the first exactly. unit. Council moved in favor of using a point system rather than a lottery process for the allocation of units in the Meadowlark development. When it comes to the deed restriction, individuals must prove the home is their primary residence. They work in the R1 school district with a number of other restrictions. The town has the first right of refusal at appraised market value. It would not be lost in foreclosure, no income limitations, and, and so on. While Haynes presented deed restriction guidelines without a price cap on resale, she says she recommends including a cap. We only have literally three price capped units in the Mountain Village. I recommend a diversity of inventory, and I think that a price capped inventory is something that we need. If you start with a restrictive deed restriction, council then has an ability to make it less restrictive in the future if you so chose. But, but if you start with a non-price capped deed restriction, you won't be able to make it more restrictive in the future. While some members of council originally did not support a price cap, they trust Haynes's recommendation and included a price cap on resale in the deed restriction of Meadowlark units. The town of Mountain Village aims to open applications for Meadowlark at the end of April, with unit selection taking place in June. Some four or five years ago, Virginia Till, a behavioral scientist working with the Environmental Protection Agency out of Denver, started to think about isolated mountain resort towns, short-term rental properties, and trash. She was curious, she says. How an influx of people affects waste. Um, it really hasn't been measured. I had been thinking on this over the years, and then an opportunity came up with my colleague at Office of Research and Development. And so we had some money, and we started phase one, which was baseline, to see how well do people recycle when they're on vacation, basically. When it came to choose a location for their ski vacation trash study, Till and the EPA landed at the Franz Klammer Lodge in Mountain Village. That was back in 2019. Condo units at the lodge produce about a ton of trash each day. During the week-long experiment, sorters combed through every bit of it. Their conclusion? Till says nearly three-quarters of what was thrown out could have been directed towards recycling or compost. Um, 75% of the materials from phase one had the potential for diversion from landfill if compost becomes an option. So it wasn't just the recyclables we looked at. We also looked at compostable materials. Last week, the study returned to the Franz Klammer Lodge to follow up four years later. They came to see if changes that Franz Klammer had made after the first phase were showing any improvement in levels of recycling. EcoAction Partners is working with the EPA to carry out the study. Speaking from the trash shed at the Franz Klammer, EcoAction's energy coordinator, Sean Hart, explains the question behind this second phase. Franz Klammer has done more education with their staff and also has, like, in each room, like, hey, please recycle and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so... We're hoping to be able to measure that we'll see more recyclables in the directed recycling waste stream. And then like the trash will be more, more densely trashed, I guess. What does trash sorting actually entail? Pretty simple. Plastic gloves, black aprons, a large table set up at the center of the shed. 
and half a dozen sorters carefully picking through bags and bags and bags of garbage. Furnished with EPA funding, the position pays $30 an hour. Telluride resident and trash sorter for the week, Carl Cody, explains the wide range of things they found. Everything from the mundane, you know, a lot of tissues, toiletries, um, food waste, all the way up to some pretty wild finds, ski gear, shopping tags, uh, clothing tags, um, cash in trash, uh, things that are usable, that, that you absolutely could find a home for or continue to make use of, and, and yet here we are picking through it to throw it away. Um, I mean, you name it, at this point, we have probably found it. Sorter Ed Watkinson adds what's been most astonishing to him is simply the volume. It's not as dirty and nasty as I thought it was going to be, but it's not pleasant at all, and uh, we throw a lot of stuff away. Yeah, and this is just one hotel, one week's worth of trash at one hotel, and this is just one resort town. The shed is out behind the village core, and the March day is mellow and drippy. Sorters dissect bags of garbage into 22 different categories, covering various recyclables, compostables, textiles, and so on. Quite a few things just make a person scratch their head. A pile of ski bindings, a pair of goggles, brand new, an unopened jug of Vermont maple syrup. Cody adds sorting trash shows up close how unsustainable our existence can be. It's a, a good reminder of how much crap we get rid of and go through, and also just the amount of wealth that's around here. And just from a, a personal standpoint, to be able to see this, it, it's a good reminder for me to do my best to try and separate this kind of crap out. Um, you know, I, I don't know that we have the facilities or the ability around here to manage as much waste as we generate. Uh, it's an inevitable reality of, of the human existence, but at the same time, I feel like there's there's gotta be a better way. Till says this is the first study looking specifically at short-term rental waste and how to improve levels of recycling amongst vacationers. So um, this unique research is really going to help, I think, with this type of lodging and also with resort areas. And then studies like this can really provide the community with insight into future programs that they might want to implement. Such programs could range from increasing educational materials in labeling to implementing municipal-wide composting. The findings will be published in journals once the data has been crunched. But one thing's already clear. Out behind the front, clamor, getting dirty in the name of science, and for 30 bucks an hour, it rings true. One condo's trash is another man's treasure. With the legislative session more than halfway through, some bills are getting hearings and others are getting signed into law. This week on Capital Conversation, KOTO State House reporter Lucas Brady Woods shares the latest. Hey, Lucas, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Thanks for having me, as always. I wanted to start off. There's some bills looking at substance use in the legislature at the moment. Can you share a little bit about what those bills are and, and where they stand? Yeah, substance use is, is a pretty big concern for lawmakers given 
the opioid, fentanyl, and, you know, other controlled substance crisis that's happening in Colorado. We're continuing to see a lot of overdose deaths. And um, we've talked about this a little bit before, how different sides of the aisle here have somewhat different approaches to the uh, uh, overdose epidemic, just because, you know, they have different philosophies behind it. And we've talked about some bills that added some some protections for people who report overdoses, some protections for people who use drugs against overdoses, uh, to protect them against overdoses. Um, but another bill that's, that's moving forward, you know, it, it's actually hitting a, a little bit of uh, some hiccups. It's a bipartisan bill co-sponsored by a Democrat and a Republican, and it would essentially increase penalties for anyone who distributes a controlled substance, gives it to a friend, transfers it to another person. If that results in someone's death, like an overdose, the person who gave it to them, sold it to them, transferred it to them, would be liable for a level one drug felony. And a drug felony is different than a homicide felony or, or other felonies. But it comes with um, up to 32 or 35 years in prison. And essentially what critics of this bill are calling it is a drug-induced homicide bill. There is no statute in Colorado at the moment that would that 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 has a punishment this severe for deaths relating from distributed controlled substances. It did hit some snags today when it was first heard on the Senate floor. There was a big pushback to it, but that's definitely one to watch. You know, for any bill, if if sponsors have their way, it will eventually get to Governor Polis's desk for a signature into law. And Governor Polis did sign several bills into law last week. Can you give a little bit of an overview of of where bills are standing when it comes to getting the seal of approval from the governor? Yeah, there there are some interesting bills that are making it through. One of them that he signed on Friday addresses mental health issues um, and and sort of the availability and access to crisis care, you know, crisis hotlines and that kind of thing for people who are really, really in a bind with with mental health crisis. This bill that Polis signed into law would require higher education institutions, public and private, to print not just the National Suicide Hotline, not just the Colorado Suicide Hotline, but both of those on the student ID, and it would also require that... um, suicide prevention resources, so not just crisis resources, but prevention resources also have contact information on those student IDs. He he also signed another one into law that would actually deal with the foster care system, and it makes it easier for kids who are removed from their home for whatever reason, it makes it easier for them to be placed with relatives, family members, what, what whatever it may be, instead of into the foster care system. Of course, it still maintains some protections there in case there are some problematic relatives. But, you know, the impetus behind the bill lawmakers say is, you know, it's better to place these kids with relatives than with strangers. Finally, uh, there was a Latino Advocacy Day at the Capitol today on Monday. Um, Can you just give an overview of, you know, what was that day like and and what was the, the sentiment and some of the priorities that people were sharing? So there are definitely a lot of advocacy days here at the Capitol. And basically what that means is is they come to the Capitol, various people, stakeholders, members of the community, advocates, 
um, to really push for certain priorities legislatively. So today we had a, a really cool gathering of maybe 300 plus people on the Capitol steps, and those were Latinos from across Colorado, and they were joined by the Latino Caucus of lawmakers here and uh, discuss some of the priorities that are important for, for that community and those communities across the state. And what they really talked about were, I sort of broke it down into four categories. One was access to health care, specifically access to abortion, reproductive health care, and gender-affirming care. That's a priority. Another priority is public safety. And the Latino Caucus is really pushing for, uh, there's one interesting bill that would mandate emergency alerts are, are distributed in both English and Spanish. And then the, the, the two other areas are really housing affordability specifically and uh, the environment and specifically air quality and water quality because those issues can impact different communities in different ways. And uh, sadly, some Latino communities are particularly impacted by air quality and water quality issues. Um, and, and, and so not only did they hold a rally on the Capitol steps, but advocates are meeting with lawmakers um, all day. They met with lawmakers all day on Monday and uh, pushed for those priorities. So we'll see what comes out of that. Yeah. Um, well, Lucas, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. And we'll check back in again with you next week. Thank you so much for having me. That was KOTO's Lucas Brady-Woods reporting from Denver. Tomorrow, Tuesday, March 21st at noon, Telluride will join over 100 other communities across the country to protest the alliance between big banks and the fossil fuel industry. The nationwide action is being organized by Third Act, a climate organization founded by activist and writer Bill McKibben. Speaking with KOTO over the phone, McKibben says the day is an important one for the climate movement. This is really the, the first day back on the streets for the climate movement since the pandemic. It's appropriate that the big four big banks, Chase, City, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, are the targets because they're also the four biggest lenders to the fossil fuel industry in the world. The event here in Telluride is being organized primarily by David Holbrook and Elizabeth Gick. Poster making will take place at 11.30 a.m. at the Pocket Park beside the courthouse, followed at noon by a short march to the new Chase Bank. McKibben, meanwhile, will spend the day of protest in Washington, D.C., but he details the outsized impact climate change is having here in southwest Colorado. Drought years, fires, floods, you name it, all of that's brought to you in part by these four banks. McKibben will be in Telluride this spring, serving as the guest director for Mountain Film, which is also collaborating on Telluride's Day of Action. Protesters can register for the Day of Action ahead of time by going to thirdact.org and gather tomorrow at the courthouse at noon. It's the spring equinox and the first official day of the new spring season. For many, it's also a time to begin planning a garden and planting seeds for the coming summer. The San Miguel Basin Extension Office, a resource for all things agricultural in the region, is announcing its seed library at the Lone Cone Library in Norwood is restocked and open for business. In the coming weeks, a second seed library will also be opening in Natarita, and a smaller selection will be made available in Telluride. 
The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for snow showers tonight with a low around 20 degrees. Winds could gust as high as 25 miles per hour. 3 to 7 inches of snow accumulation is possible. Tuesday, there's a 100% chance of snow showers with a high near 40 degrees during the day and a low around 30 degrees at night. Winds could gust as high as 55 miles per hour and 4 to 8 inches of snow accumulation is possible. Wednesday expects no showers with wind gusts as high as 60 miles per hour. The high is in the mid-30s with a low around 15 degrees. This has been the news for Monday, March 20th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.